Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, Geekscapers. Welcome to a brand new Geekscape podcast. I'm Jonathan London, your host. If this is your first Geekscape, well, you're in the right spot if you want to talk pop culture, movies, video games, comic books, TV. We're going to be talking a lot of film this episode. Uh, my friend Adam Siegel is on the show, and uh, as you'll hear in our conversation, it's kind of funny how I get to the pronunciation of his name. A little embarrassing, just a little bit. But you know what? If I stopped doing Geekscape at the first embarrassment, well, I wouldn't be here 18 years later still doing Geekscape. Hope you're well. I've uh, loved the numbers. I th- feel like doing this nice little candid conversation with you guys very quickly before the um, episodes has helped uh, the numbers a bit. Um it's exclusive to the audio content. Yes, the conversations I have with filmmakers or guests last week uh, was my friend Rob Kuttner. Um, he put a book out. Uh, basically, the creative conversations, you can find those on YouTube. You can find them on our Facebook page, all that stuff. But the audio, this little section about me and my life, maybe two episodes ago, I sat down with Heidi, my wife, and we talked about Barbie. Uh, this little insight, this stuff you only get on the audio episode. So share it with your friends. Uh, I'll keep it quick because Adam and I had a conversation that I just am completely in love with. It, uh, was about filmmaking, but as you'll see by the end of it, it was very much about why we make films, why we tell stories, why would I like to do, I I like to call it the personal paleontology is so important. Um, just, you know, this is, this is a filmmaker with Adam who, uh, loves to turn over stones and I think that's why I like telling stories and engaging with human beings uh, in that way or uh, is turn over the stones not just on the exterior and others but inside yourself and that conversation and Adam is very much in that lane um, speaking of turning over stones uh, painful stuff um, we got some some deaths in the wrestling community um, the pro wrestling community I am not a big wrestling fan, as y'all know, but my brother, Paul London, spent so much time uh, not only in the WWE, but in, what was it, Uh, not ECW, he was in um, Ring of Honor, that's the one, (laughs) Ring of Honor, he's on uh, the Lucha Underground, he's spent time in Japan, he spent time on all the different indies, he went to Australia, I just, all the great trips my brother has told me about that wrestling has um, brought him to all these different places in the world. Uh, Terry Funk died, and Terry Funk is is somebody who stands out to me because he was my brother's most prominent trainer, as far as I knew. Uh, a lot of really great people have trained Paul, uh, but I think Terry Funk is the one that uh, and I think his brother Dory Funker, those are the ones that really like set my brother on the path to getting onto TV, getting into WWE, doing all the things that maybe if you know my brother, you all know, maybe you know me from my brother and his wrestling career. Uh, but Terry Funk was one of the big ones in that, 
uh, in, in that road. And, um, so it's sad when I, when I saw that Terry Funk died, that one hit different. Uh, not that any of these wrestling deaths is a tragedy. They're all tragedies. Um, I think this is a hard life. This wrestling thing is a hard life. And, um, I wish my brother didn't go through it. <laughs> I wish a lot of these, I mean, I wish there was just a different, I don't, I don't know what it is. It's like, you're punishing yourselves and I think that the wrestler and this has been documented so many times from beyond the mat and all these documentaries and movies like the wrestler, like this lifestyle is so hard and the rewards are so few yet there's something about it that is a calling and my brother, it speaks to him and uh, my brother has a calling and Terry Funk had a calling and um, Terry Funk helped my brother with his calling. And uh, one day I think my brother and I will tell the story of when we were leaving our teenage lives. Uh, I was in college and Paul was in and out of college <laughs> trying to pursue wrestling and just the friction it created in our own family. And it was just a few years out of, uh, the death of our older brother Daniel and my big thing was oh my god just facing immortality like that and just folding things over your head and knowing that life is so precious uh and wanting to achieve your dreams and just I don't know but when I saw my brother going for wrestling I felt conflicted in that like I wanted to support him and see him achieve this thing that he's wanted to do since he was a kid. And he only lived once. And that had just been, you know, we, we'd just been reminded of that in the death of our brother. And they're saying, oh, we only live once. You, you know, go for your dreams and this and that. But it was also something that was extremely dangerous. And just the conflict I had within myself, but then the conflict within the family. And, like, <laughs> this was not okay that my brother was pursuing indie wrestling. This is not okay. You know, the family wanted him to go to college. And he's dipping out and skipping school to go pursue indie wrestling. And, um, that was a, that was a tough little period there. <laughs> I definitely was in the middle of, uh, my brother and my dad. And, and, uh, there was a lot of conflict and I didn't know what to do. It was a tough position to put in, to be put in. Um, and I, you know, I put myself in it out of loyalty to my brother. And uh, that being said, this is the Terry Funk era that, that era I'm talking about in my, uh, younger years is also the Terry Funk era. That's when my brother was being uh, trained by by people outside of Texas, in Texas, and he was having to travel to different places to be uh, taught by these wrestling legends. And Terry Funk was the person who I think got him into the WWE training camp and then put him on put a put a the, kind of their radar on Paul. Not that it wasn't going to happen eventually. I mean, the Ring of Honor stuff I saw him doing while I was in grad school was just crazy and like how was he ever going to avoid you know stardom in wrestling after the, some of the stuff that we saw him doing ring, in ring of honor but terry funk was a big part of this and so rest in peace terry funk uh thank you for all the guidance and gifts uh that you gave my brother um he is a legend my brother speaks so highly of him and i know he was in a pretty down place learning the news so i i remember this past weekend, I just called my brother up, saw how he was doing. It was a pretty low day. 
learning that Terry Funk was gone. So rest in peace. I know wrestling fans listen to this. Um, if you're a wrestling fan, you want to listen to more wrestling talk. Uh, my brother is uh, unofficially on the Geekscape network. He's been moonlighting over at the uh, $2 late fee podcast with um, the Territory Marks episodes. If you go over to $2 late fee and you subscribe to that, he and Zach uh, do these Territory Marks episodes that are in the same feed as the $2 late fee episodes where they go and look at classic matches uh, and talk about classic wrestlers like the Von Erichs and um, different guys like the Steiner brothers and Sting and all that stuff. So if you're into wrestling and you want to listen to more wrestling on the Geekscape Network, go over to Tular Late Fee and listen to my brother and Zach talk on those Territory Marks episodes. Uh, they have a whole lot of fun doing that. And I'm glad to I, – I sent him a text, man. I was like, I love you, man. I'm, I'm glad that you're on the network unofficially. <laughs> like you're, you're under the, the roof that I built. And that makes me feel good. So, uh, Geekscapists, enjoy a awesome episode with my buddy Adam, his movie Nander Fordor, and The Talking Mongoose starring Simon Pegg comes out this week. Um, and here we are talking about it. Uh, love you lots, and here we go. Hey, Geekscapists, welcome to a brand new Geekscape podcast. I'm Jonathan London, your host. And if this is your first Geekscape, this is the part of the show where I say, where have you been these last 15, 16 years? Uh, I've kind of lost count. I have to like mathematically peel back. Okay, well, it's 2023. We started Geekscape in late 2006. Okay, we're getting close to 18 years old. Uh, It's insane, but we've been talking movies, video games, comic books, pop culture. Sometimes we're at a con. Sometimes this is done live on stage. Sometimes it's a panel that I'm moderating, and I take it, and I put it up on this feed. Uh, what did y'all get? Y'all got some weird stuff in the feed recently. If you're subscribing on audio, uh, I really, really, really enjoyed Blue Beetle. And I loved that Blue Beetle episode. I love that movie. I think it's fun. If you guys are into comic book movies, you haven't had the comic book exhaustion. Maybe if you have, that's the movie that feels fresh again. So I'm going to recommend Blue Beetle. Uh, did you partake in this last uh, weekend's $4 movie Sunday thing? Uh, there were $4 movies this past Sunday. And there are people who I know went like three or four movies. They had a 3D uh, re-release of Jurassic Park. A lot of my friends went to see that. I suggested friends with kids to go see that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie, which I loved, or Blue Beetle, which I thought was great if the kids were a little bit older. Uh, I went and saw, I caught up on Mission Impossible. I caught up on the new Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 because you got to see those movies on the big screen. They're spectacles. They've got crazy set pieces, and this one's no different. I don't know. Uh, Christopher McQuarrie is probably like, yeah, then we'll do this, then we'll do that, and yeah, screw it. And then he'll jump off a, a cliff. And how, how many ways can you jump off a cliff? Uh, so we went and enjoyed that one yesterday. Uh, so I don't know. Hit the comments. Maybe you're watching this live on YouTube, Facebook, Twitch, or uh, maybe on LinkedIn. That's weird. We, we streamed to LinkedIn. So if you're dropping resumes, drop some comments. Um, and uh, we've got a great show, Talking Movies. There's going to be a lot of movie talk today. My, my friend Adam Sagal is on the show. He's got a brand new movie coming out this week called Nandor Fordor and the Talking Mongoose. Speaking of panels and, and moderating and all that stuff I like to do on stage, uh, I actually met Adam at LA Comic Con. I think it might have been two LA Comic Cons ago. So it would have been the engagement LA Comic Con when I proposed to Heidi. You guys remember that? Uh, Giancarlo Esposito was my wingman for the proposal, held the ring, gave me the ring, and then I proposed to Heidi. Uh, well, in the wings was my friend Claire King, 
And Claire, I know this is getting circuitous. Sorry. Claire, I know from a long time Geekscape is David King, who listened all the way back in the Geek Drum days and ended up married to Claire. And I remember in 2009 being in London uh, for a music video and going to lunch with David and David saying, yeah, this, this girl and I, uh, it's getting serious. And this and that, I think that already moved continents because one of them is Australian. I think <laughs> maybe that was David, uh, but he was in London and, um, and now Claire is one of the producers over at Legion M friends of ours and our neighbors over at Comic-Con and they're putting out Alexander's Philippe, Alexander Philippe's movie. Uh, they're putting out my friend, Adam Mortimer's movies, our friend, Kevin Smith's movies, and this guy coming up, Adam Sigal, he's got this brand new movie, Nander Fordor and the talking mongoose. It's, uh, Claire produced it. It's Legion M and is uh, starring our former Geekscape friend. He's still our friend, but he was former Geekscapist, uh, Simon Pegg. And uh, Adam's on the show. We, we met backstage, I think, at LA Comic Con. And he's like, yeah, I'll come on the show. And here he is. He's coming on the show. Um, so that's what we got coming up. There's going to be a lot of filmmaking talk. I want you guys to strap yourselves in for that. Um, and let's just not dilly-dally. Here we go. All right, Geekscapists, we're back. First question, now that we're live, is the pronunciation of my guest's name. I said, listen, there's Peter Siegel, there's Steven Seagal, and then there's the word Siegel, right? Like a like a sign, like, a, like an emblem, like an insignia, the Siegel. Um, but Adam spells it S-I-G-A-L. Now... There's a tier system. I think maybe like an F Mary Kill as far as pronunciations for his last name. The options are Sigel, Siegel, or like <laughs> Steven Seagal. <laughs> so go ahead and F Mary Kill amongst yourselves what spelling or pronunciation you would want. But let's go ahead to the source right now. Filmmaker Peter, I can't even say it with a straight face now. Uh, he's going to have to say it himself. Um, Peter's here. Or Adam, I was—I got busy saying Peter Siegel. Um, Adam, you're you're on the show. Uh, which, how do you pronounce your last name? Because I said it Siegel in the only because it wasn't spelled like Siegel or Seagal, but I said Siegel. Is that correct? They're all right and they're all wrong. I don't actually. No, don't do this. Oh, this oh, quantum oh, physics. Well, shit. here's what I'll tell you: one that is wrong. <laughs> so my dad's name is Stephen. So we skip the Seagal. Because my dad's name okay. is Steven, so we don't want to necessarily do the yeah. seagull. When, you don't want to pick up the mantle again? When I tell people, I just say seagull. That's it. Okay. The seagull. Okay. That's it. Because Peter Siegel is cool. Peter Siegel is great. Fucking great. Um, and seagull is like, I think it adds to your mystery. I always thought that word was pronounced sigil, so I'm, I don't It is. It is. It's sigil. <laughs> so I'm going to call you Adam Sigil from now on. You can on. call me Adam Sigil. I'm actually going to yeah. legally change it to that. It is Sigil, and I remember that now because this is the nerdiest. This may be the nerdiest thing that's been said on this show in the, la- in the last in the last week. Um, 
Geekscapists, remember in the late 90s when there were uh, a lot of problems with distribution in comic books and Marvel and DC were having issues and all of a sudden, like, like uh, there were like three or four distributors and nobody, and obviously Image Comics popped out of nowhere in 1992, 93 and started uh, their own line of comics and other people were like, hey, I'm going to jump myself in the uh, indie comics ring. Remember Cross-Gen Comics? <laughs> they had a comic called Sigil. In fact, their entire shared comic universe over at CrossGen was based around in each comic series there was a character with a sigil and it was like the emblem of the comic book company that's that was in the upper left hand corner of the comic so the sigil was the big one and that is why i should have always remembered well, how the to pronounce process of elimination cool. then Seagull is just an incorrect pronunciation of it. Seagull, just throw that away. Seagull well, doesn't work. Because my dad, so it's Adam Seagull. Oh. Don't you want to blaze your own path? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I'm changing my last name to Seagull. The incorrect pronunciation. Seagull now because this fucking yeah. dope over here on Geekscape couldn't say it right. And it's a new era for me. Thank you. I love the, the Geekscape is, if you're not driving off the screen, street geekscape is listening to this in your car or like throwing your computer at work listening to this at work uh i'm sorry for that that literacy issue that happened I'm, <laughs> like, I'm, I'm currently streaming this from linkedin because you that's that's as i update my resume since the movie industry i laugh about that stuff and then every now and then we get a comment from uh linkedin uh jim pagranelli from uh, long island he's here or he's not long island he's in <laughs> he's in uh, brooklyn where are you he's you're in brooklyn Jim, as someone used to uh, used to the other people flailing with pronunciation of my last name, this intro gave me a nice chuckle. I, I actually literally had my one of my ex girlfriends, really good friends. Last name was Pellegrinelli, so I'm assuming that's how you pronounce his last name. So yeah, it's Jim. Who struggled with your last name, Jim? Uh, whatever, you're not being interviewed, Jim. But you, Mr. Pellegrinelli, uh, I miss you, buddy. And uh, Jim and I, you're here every week, man. I love having you in the in the audience, Jim. Thanks. So Adam. Um, you got this new movie, Nandor Fordor in the Talking Mongoose. You're you're hyped, dude. I'm hyped. I am. Talk to me about putting this movie together because you basically had to put it together on the like, like basically on the tail end of the last movies. Um, and this one is completely different. Like I watched this uh, trailer and I'm like. Okay, this isn't Chariot. It is different. I mean, all my movies seem to be about death, so it does have at least that through line. But yeah, I mean, look, I can give you the short sort of broad strokes, or I can give you the gnarly, like, in-depth way that this one came about. <laughs> I mean, whichever is better for this show. And I'm I allowed uh, to curse on this show, too. I should probably ask that up front. Yeah, but what? Am I allowed to curse on you, this? Yeah, you, you heard my intro. Um, you can also mispronounce things that are that a third grader could say properly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, talk to me about how this movie came about in like broad strokes. Did you write that? You write all your stuff. I write all my stuff. I wrote this. I heard this true story, you know, like 10 years ago. And I always knew I was going to make my talking mongoose movie. I would always tell people I'm going to make it. And it wasn't until I had this really gnarly, bizarre religious life experience that it like suddenly all came together. So I wrote, I actually wrote this script while I was making Chariot, if you can believe it, which is fucking insane. Well, Chariot seems like a million spinning plates to begin with. Like that, it, plus you, that's like pandemic stuff. I, and, I mean, oh, and, and as it, the, the filmmakers who've made, who've come on here to promote the movies they made during the pandemic, they're like, 
it was like an experience like none other. And then you wrote something on top of it. There's a couple of questions. And the first one I think is, yes, it is based on a true story. Nandor Fordor was a true paranormal investigator. And there was a true story in the Isle of Man that there was a talking mongoose supposedly that was talking to people from a farmhouse. And you, and and Nandor Fordor was the person who was hired to go and and investigate. Yeah, he was, I think, the last person to go investigate. And then it kind of turned into like a precursor to the National Enquirer to an extent, like this whole like idea that there was a talking mongoose and a whole village was talking to it under a farmhouse. Am I incorrect no, in thinking that that was the precursor to the National Enquirer? It's a huge story in England. It went all the way to Parliament. It, this very this story, and I have to refresh my memory about this, this, this actual case led to a fist fight in the halls of Parliament. And it was something to do with like libel and like, cause, cause the guy, uh, Mr. Irving was very litigious and there was something like, this was a big story back then, you know? And they settled to the tune of, I think, 7,500 pounds. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This was, yeah, which was a big settlement. Yeah. But they probably fought like, like the Lucky Charms leprechauns, you know, they, they probably are like throwing each other's wigs off and pulling. Wigs off. <laughs> yeah. Now it's just British stereotypes. Yeah. Uh, but this story, the more I read about this true story, the more insane it got. How did you first hear about the talking oh, mongoose story? Oh, I know it's been referenced in pop culture here and there, yeah. but not, it, this is a deep cut. So randomly. And it is so random. Like it's hilarious. So my job as I was coming up as a filmmaker was I was a private investigator. So I did surveillance on people. I did a lot of sitting in my car, right? And when, you know, this was 10, 12 years ago. So I would listen to the radio a lot. And I would listen to sports talk radio. And I was listening to this show. And they had this ridiculously dumb segment called like Dead Guy Birthday. And they would celebrate the birthday of some guy that had been dead. And the guy says, today's the birthday of Dr. Nandor Fodor, the father of modern parapsychology. His most famous case was investigating the talking mongoose of the Isle of Man. And I kind of just was like, what the fuck did he just say? And then I started going online and Googling it. And I was like, holy shit, this is a crazy fucking story. It's so wild. And and again, back then I was like, I'm going to write about this someday. And I wrote other scripts and I made other, I made two movies in the interim of waiting to sort of write this. And then, yeah, I had this weird life experience and it, it led to the the sort of the synthesis of my own philosophies with the, the biopic of Nandor. So the movie is like, my movie is like, it's probably like 70% based on actual notes and incidents and characters and, you know, like anecdotes and stuff like that from both Nandor and Dr. Price. He, they both wrote about it. Nandor wrote about it most prominently in a book called Between Two Worlds. And then Dr. Price wrote about it in just a bunch of notes. And then some of it is kind of my own suppositions about these characters and in relation to myself. And we, I mean, the liberties are taken. Yeah. Whatever. I don't think they're going to complain. You're definitely not going to get sued or fought in the halls of parliament. Yeah, for this. Um, I, I just thought this story was insane, but uh, Adam, you had, you yourself have an insane story and I'm skipping a part that I'm actually fascinated about. And I, you, the, the private investigator stuff, I think, is so important to your job as a director. Yeah. And I think it's very important to your job in the revisionism of your job as a screenwriter. You know, and like the, the best thing I tell people when they're talking about screenwriting is like the first time you meet your characters is like passing them on the street. But 
But then the next day you show up and maybe you find out you, you take the same bus and you sit at the bus stop. And then the third time you explain, exchange highs and then you get to know their name. And the time that you're ready to really get them to inhabit your script and, and kind of run with your story is they've been longtime friends. And that's kind of familiarity. But that comes through your own personal paleontology of going back in layers. So it's all investigative process, the process of writing, the process of directing, and the process of creating layers of this stuff. Uh, you came to it through private investigating. How did that add to, I don't mean you came to it through uh -huh. private investigating, no, you're, 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 you're a writer, but how did private investigating and seeing small it details? Was, it was that, but it was also just the death of my innocence because I moved to LA when I was 19 or, or 20. Yeah, but you moved from Florida. So how innocent but were it, you? Well, reasonably, because I was only 20. So I just had no idea what sure. was really out there. So the the most primary the, the biggest influence it had on me was number one seeing a lot of parts of society that I would never see I mean like a, a lot of a lot of time in in areas where I didn't spend a lot of time a lot of people who are not from necessarily the same walk of life as me and also just seeing people lying and seeing people doing shitty things to each other all day and people who I could walk up to them and I would talk to them and interact with them and they seemed so nice and so cool and I how'd you get the job though. I mean, Adam, like you and I have similar stories where we come from a middle class background. Yeah. We could probably come from a like, even though I'm Latino, I come from a, a white neighborhood. Sure. Like I come from a white neighborhood. And then you move out. I mean, I went to Philly instead of coming to L.A. Yeah, you came you, you came to L.A. I went to Philly. Like I did not go into public like private investigation. Why did, did you go into private investigation? No, I, That's what I'm asking. No, I, I wanted to. I always wanted to make movies and write. I just needed a job to pay the bills. And my parents knew the owner of this company. And they were like, do you want to go be a PI? And as I started doing it, I was like, okay, I get a lot of time to think. I make okay money. I, I get, you know, it, it was a job. And I stuck sure. with it. And I got licensed. And, like, I never enjoyed it. But it was better than being a waiter or better than, like, a real white collar thing. It had flexibility. It had, like, and also, again, like, it influences everything, all my writing, like the characters and just like, I can, I feel like I can write truly deep characters now that I've seen what people say they are and then people who they really are having literally seen it in the same person. Mm -hmm. So that's the biggest thing that it influenced for me. You could have become Nightcrawler, dude. Uh, I, who says I'm not? Come on. <laughs> At night, you're just running around <laughs> like, well, that Nightcrawler, the X-Men, you know, I'm talking about the movie. I know the one you're, I know you're talking about. The Geekscapists don't know. I always have to differentiate things from the X-Men. What's you know. Wagner? What's his name? Kurt? Kurt Wagner. Oh, okay. Who I think, somebody asked me, like, who, I mean, don't ask people their, their love language or their sign. Ask people their favorite X-Men. And for me, it's, it's always been Colossus. I wish it was... Nightcrawler, because I think Nightcrawler is the purest X-Men. I think he was the best. He's the friend. He's the one who is, I mean, or that or Kitty Pride, who's also like the most pure, hopeful X-Men, yeah. doesn't have any bad stories where they do bullshit. My favorite X-Men's really lame, dude. I just, my favorite one was Archangel, because I just always wanted to be able to fly. <laughs> and a lot of X-Men can fly. There's that big Yeah, but you had to be like an edgelord. Like you didn't, you weren't Angel, yeah. you were Archangel. Yeah, the, yeah. You were after Apocalypse. One. I liked the fucked up one after Apocalypse, like, fucked with him and turned his wings into steel. That, I was just, I just thought the visual on it was so dope that I wanted to be like a steel flying angel. I don't think Warren Worthington was that great no, for no. Art Ankle. Like, his job on the X Men was basically to pick up X Men and carry them yeah. to, like, other stuff. Yeah. And, like, Gene Gray can do that. Gene Gray can just sure. do that. But, like, but he looked. Um, 
Yeah, the first toss up with Magneto in the very first X Men book, it's like basically he uses Warren Worthington to like throw at the other X Men. Like he's a complete liability. But then when Apocalypse gets a hold of him, then he was dope. Then he was cool. Then he's fucking cool. And I don't think he's been cool. No. <laughs> I have a few Apocalypse books amongst the many books on my shelves. Dude. The Age of Apocalypse books from the mid nineties. Yeah. You were around during this the sigil cross James. And I and when you were talking about image too, I've got a bunch of the Max ones over there. The Max was always like my favorite, like sort of undercover. I mean well here, hold on. Okay. I mean Sam Keith's the Max is yeah, an under I love that Max from t- Todd McFarlane Toys right there. Oh, oh dude, I was I was big, big on those. Obsessed with those. Anyway. I am a big fan of the of Sam Keith's The Max. I think the stuff that Todd McFarlane and I like I like the main image stuff. Like I like all that stuff that Rob Liefeld and Jim Lee and all that, that they were doing. But um, Sam Keith to me, especially because like he had the indie cred of being on him, he had the cred of like having an MTV cartoon. I, as well. The MTV cartoon was dope. Like, it was incredible. Sam Keith is somebody who the second I see any of their artwork on a comic book. Like whether it's the Max Batman or him just doing his own indie book, yeah. like he's 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 still working, and I think he's incredible. I'll even find his stuff in a mainstream Marvel book yeah. from the eighties, and you know, and I'll do the same thing with um, with what's his name? It does Hellboy? Uh, uh, you know, Magnola. All Magnola. Like we we talk about Rocket Raccoon. Like Mike Magnola drew the first Rocket Raccoon Crazy. story of all that stuff, or in the Rocket Raccoon title, yeah. Not in the Hulk comic he was introduced in, in the Rocket Raccoon title. You can still see that's Mike Mignola with like yeah. the heavy inks and things like that. And you're just like, oh damn, Absolutely. this is some Mike Mignola work. Nice. All right, let's let's keep talking. You said that there was a religious experience that happened. Yeah, that, it was. Talk about that thing because you just kind of skipped through it, and I was like, no, 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 no. That feels like a life turning point. That feels like to to get it to without like actually like incriminating people who were involved. The the broad stroke on that is like. Somebody in my life made a decision fully to like devote themselves so wholeheartedly to a religion at the sort of like major detriment to life, like a, yeah. like a decision to like, like a cult. Yeah, exactly. And I'm saying it, you're not saying yeah, it. like you can, can maintain relationships. And, like, and, I, in a, and in a way that was really fucking gnarly and, and in a way that ruined a, a number of lives. And, and I remember thinking about it all the time and just being like, how much must you want to believe in something to believe in it so fiercely that you go against the the daily life and the things that are making you happy on a day to day basis. And that was what triggered Nandor in a strange way was what Nandor is about is the relationship between faith and cynicism and happiness because Nandor represents myself. And the first conversation I had with Simon was so great because he instantly knew exactly what I was going for. And he felt the same way. And I was like, Oh fuck. Yeah, this is it. Basically like I consider myself to be sort of a spiritual atheist and I don't have any specific religious feeling. I feel like there's more than this, but I don't know what it is. But, would that be an agnostic or an atheist? Would or, an atheist I, be I like feel agnostic like... and, and I, I'm, I'm not great with my terminology, but doesn't agnostic, Neither am I, Mr. Sigal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Basically, I'm, I'm not searching. That's the one thing. Like, I just kind of don't sure. care. Like, I like. I, I think there's more out there, but I don't know what it is. But the point is, the major religions, I just can't vibe with them. 
like I'm with you, and I, but I think that atheism is like a like a staunch does not effing exist. And I think agnostic is like agnostic. I think is closer to what you're you, saying. You could be right, sure. So I'll call myself an agnostic. But but the point being that the major religions, including the one that this person was a part of, put a lot of stock in things that they wanted you to believe that you couldn't really see and weren't really there. And I could never quite get my brain to that point. It, like you sit there, you tell me. When you die, you're going to go to heaven and be with all your loved ones for the rest of eternity. It sounds fucking incredible. I'm so stoked for that concept. But there's nothing you can say that's going to give me that deep certainty that that's true. And you've met people with near like death experiences and stuff. And they've told you the stories of like how they saw things. I was meeting with a friend yesterday who walked out of a burning house. Like he, he sadly, my friend lost his feet and we went down to the hospital to visit him yesterday and he walked out of his house and was put in a medically induced coma, but they couldn't believe he walked out of the house. Yeah. He lost his feet in the process, but he said his life when he was on fire flashed before his eyes. And so I was like, did you see me? And, and was I, was I important enough to make the reel of your life? No, I didn't make the reel. He told me, he's like, he's like, hey, he's like I didn't see you at any, at any point. My entire life flashed before my eyes. You were not in any of it. He's so. like, my life flashed before you're at my eyes. He's, you're like, how did that look? He's like, oh. Yeah. He's like, you were fucking, I had to, I had to ask to like lighten the mood. Yeah. But yeah, I wasn't. But no, no, the, the thing is for me is like, I, I've never been able to do the faith thing. I've never quite been able to get there. And I'm a bit cynical, but that doesn't necessarily make me happy. And, and I look at people who truly can turn their brain off to the extent that what's in front of them, they can believe shit that's, that cannot be fucking proven and how happy it makes them and that deep sense of comfort that they must feel. And, and that is Nandor. That, that, that is what it's about. It's about what I sort of, the, the logic leap that I took with Nandor is he, and a lot of it's true. And it's based on some of the stuff that really happened in Nandor's life. When he was young, he had an encounter with a medium named William Carthauser. And Nandor, Nandor was very depressed after the loss of his father. And he went to a medium to try to encounter his dead father. And he realized that it was bullshit, right? And it, it deeply impacted him though, because he wanted to believe, he wanted it to be true. So I created Nandor as this character who is searching for the case that's going to mystify him. It's, he's searching for the case that's going to, it's similar to what happened with Harry Houdini toward the end of his life in, in a different way. I don't know how, and I actually, there's this like sort of five minute, like sort of divergence in Nandor in my film about Harry Houdini, where, where he talks about the end of his life and an aspect of mm -hmm. the end of his life that is a parallel to what I wrote about Nandor. But it's, you know, basically it's a guy who's searching for the case that's going to He's so cynical, and, and Nandor was famous. He's a parapsychologist. The specialty of his sort of sub-aspect of the paranormal research was that he didn't believe in the paranormal. He believed it was all based on delusion and all based on you know trauma. And so he didn't know why Jonathan was seeing his dead grandmother. He wanted to understand what trauma you had suffered to make you see your dead grandmother, right? But but I added the additional layer to him of like, but he want, in the end, he really wants that like case where he can look it in the eye and go, oh, my God, OK, there is something else. And, and truly fucking, you know, give him even just a, a little string that he can pull on to start believing. And so that's what and and to be fair, this case with Jeff has elements that are just inexplicable. And most of them are the human elements. Like, why? 
Like these fucking people went to their graves saying Jeff was real. He wasn't fucking real. It was a farce. I mean, if you look at all of the talking mongoose, like, right? It's bullshit. But they fucking Voire, the daughter. I mean, she went to her grave saying, and there was no financial incentive. They, you know, like obviously the the sort of where I end up in the film is kind of like, okay, like what is what are people going to be remembered for? You know, like I think that they probably kept it going for the sake of fame it for what it was worth and it could have been that but even that was strange because he was successful and they were simple people they didn't they weren't the type who would do this but when you suffer a loss as Zandor did early in his life and in in i mean it, it can do two things it can make you a cynic and then it can also make you seek justification for this horrid thing that happened to you on the on on the on the flip of a dime you know what i mean like yeah. ultimately i'm like you i'm cynical i think we're all like evolved parasites floating around like stuck <laughs> to like this molten rock and vacuum and it's yeah. like okay like somehow these parasites on this molten rock evolved in vacuum we're like okay yeah. uh, but but when my brother uh, Geekscape, you all know this. Adam may not know this, but but in in 1986, when my with the night my brother was hit by a drunk driver, I remember walking the 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 neighborhood in the middle of the night and and looking up and seeing a, a shooting star. It, it, the things that people make themselves yeah. believe. Did, did I see a fucking shooting star? I don't know if I saw a shooting star. Yeah. The things I've made myself believe over the years, and the things that people need to believe, is that not the ultimate like? Yeah justification for the existence of faith and maybe not the maybe not the reality there's no reality but faith this is a movie about faith literally the first line of nandor is a title card that is an actual quote from the real nandor that says the fear of death begins at birth right now for me i think all religion is based on the fact that everyone's terrified of fucking death and they're look and death is the last unanswered question science is it's not economics. It's not a. It's not a. It's a, it's a control mechanism based on like science has solved everything yeah. except yeah, right. like let's be real and and you know not to take the interview in a in- well, or except acceptance. I think death is an exercise in acceptance. I don't know. Like I think science is pretty much wrapped up. I agree that. with you. I, I do agree with you on that perspective. And there's a strange comfort to be found in that, but that's a much more philosophical thing. But you know, not, <laughs> not to take it in a super dark direction, but pertaining to what you said about your brother, and I'm so sorry about that. If you want to hear something really fucked up, uh, <clears throat> my so my girlfriend, my my partner for about two and a half years. We made Chariot together. She was my my life partner. We lived together. She was also my producing partner. She passed away at the beginning of last year. She actually she actually passed away the day before I flew out to meet Simon for the first time. She, Wait, she, she what? Yeah, she she died pretty suddenly, and so I flew the next day. We had just signed Simon on, and I flew the the day after she passed. I flew out from where she was to to L.A. to meet with Simon. She died suddenly, though, and she was when she wasn't sick. Yeah, she she, died in no, she got cancer. She had uh, stage four pancreatic cancer, but it was she passed. It, it, the whole process was about a, about two months from being healthy no, 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 and no. like straight up, like we were roller skating together, and then two months later, she was dead. I mean, it was it was like un, it, it was horrific beyond all reckoning. But I I went the other direction from you with the shooting star thing, and uh, you know, a lot of people and stuff would say, you know, she's with you and. She can still, and I she couldn't feel it. I, I wanted to, and I wanted to believe that, and I want to believe that in some capacity she's around and whatever. But I, something deep in me just wouldn't let me believe it. That was your immediate response. But in the years since, and making this movie, yeah, 
what were the because because I'm because I'm like you I'm like the immediate sense I'm like well this is a kick in the pain you know what I mean like this sucks and this is an actual you know what I mean and yeah. and I've described I don't know if you've been through divorce but divorce mm-hmm. is like yeah so like you and I are so if we talk we could talk about all this stuff you guys are like well, I want to make a shot I want to learn about filmmaking yeah. how do you pick your shots yeah. no Geeks yeah. Campus I have literally 18 years of podcasts where I've talked to filmmakers not that Adam isn't <laughs> worthy of collecting filmmaking but this podcast go back in the Geekscape and find out how to make a effing shot list. so listen the divorce I have described as harder than god this sounds horrible I'm so sorry if my parents listen to this it was it was harder for me to deal with the gray area of a divorce than the absolute of a death because like you i accepted the death as an absolute but in the years the 20 plus years since the death and maybe in the last three years since the death there are these weird signs yeah there are these signs adam That's great and i'm like you like oh, have you, but have you have you seen the signs uh, that, there are these they speak to you. No, that's beautiful, man. And I, and I, like I said, my, my belief system is that there is more than this, but I don't know what it is that, that, that is, that is sums up. My- us fooling ourselves. Is that enough for us? Is that like, I like, we're just fooling ourselves. Cause that's maybe aspect of but your story. No, but at that part, like, and that can be good enough. I'm okay with that being good. Yeah. Enough. And what's crazy. And also too, man, I'll tell you like, you know, losing a partner is, is uh, quite an, it's, it is for me, it's the second worst thing that can possibly happen. And I have kids and you can guess what the first is, which I won't even say out loud, but losing mm-hmm. your partner is a uniquely fucked up thing because that's your, that's where you go. You know, like that's, your your that's like you, you, you lose a parent, you lose a, a sibling, you lose, you lose a dog. Like those things are all fucked up. There's no question, but your partner is the one that comforts you, you know? And those are aspirations. Those are dreams. Those are plans for the future that you have to put in the ground. It's so it is, uh, you know, and, and I jumped straight from her death into Nandor. I mean, straight up, like I met with Simon about a month later, went to England and shot this movie and was just like, you know, tried to lose myself in the, in the insanity of film and which I did. And it helped me to process it because, you know, I, I realized with tragedy, there's no, there's no comfort other than distraction when it's that. It may be the best thing. I remember a month after separation going to Brazil and shooting Cowboy Hawk yeah. and yeah. being so grateful that I was in a, another country yeah. where people in a, another language weren't going to be like, so how are you? They didn't know me from effing Adam. Yeah. Hey, Adam, different Adam. But they didn't know me. Yeah. And I wasn't going to be on the streets of freaking like you know, Sao Paulo with people going, Oh, I heard what happened. I heard you. Like, and, and so, but, but when you came home, uh, you shoot this movie and you came home, dude, that was a rough, that was a rough, strange homecoming with coming home to the house full of all of her shit. And, and it was like, that was weird. Sobering. That, that, and she had, she was the first person I, I wrote Nandor while filming chariot while she slept with her head in my lap. Cause we were together during chariot. And so she, she read Nandor as it was being written. She loved it so much. And she, and you know, it, what was really fucked up too, when we were casting Nandor, so she had already passed away at this point. She was the biggest yeah. mini driver fan. She was su- like, it, she was a, such a huge fan of gross point blank. And like, so when, when, when mini came about, cause Simon was the first person we cast and then we kind of yeah. started putting pieces to, around beside him and somebody mentioned mini. I was like, yes, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the signs. <laughs> it was a sign. All right, fine. All right. I think I believe. Uh, I, I, you know what? I can't wait to see the movie, Adam. Yeah. Like, 
like you and I have known each other a little bit just through like social media and talking and da 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 da. We we only recently exchanged cell phones and this and that, but but this is I it's sorry, Geekscapists, we're looking for a film education, but um Again, like there's a lot of podcasts in this feed. Yeah, sorry, are, I went off topic. Talk. I'll talk and, but but I but but I value these conversations more because they are what the films are about, and they are what our storytelling is about, and they are what inherently, they are what led you to pick up a book and a pen and a, they are what you are doing, and it goes back to that idea that when people are like, oh, you work in make believe, and and what I love about you specifically, Adam, is win or fail. Right, like whatever anybody thinks of your work, and I've not seen enough to say win or fail, but you go at you go you go out and you want to hit it to a different part of the park every time. And somebody was asking me, we were we were discussing a pretty major filmmaker who's like tons of people went to see their the film, and I just cannot bring myself to see their film because it feels like the other films, and that. and that is to, I and I can't. I'll still watch all the freaking superhero stuff, but that's for Geek's Game. Uh, but, but I can't keep watching the filmmaker make the same tonal film over and over again. But someone like a Danny Boyle, yeah. who was like, oh, you are actually trying to make a different movie every time. When you have somebody like an Ang Lee, who is like, yeah, I'll make a superhero movie. Yeah. yeah. I'll make a Woodstock movie and I'll make a, I'll make my own Kung Fu movie yeah. and I'll do my own, like, you are actually trying to hit it to a different part of the park, yeah. regardless of whether or not you found your lane. You know what I mean? Like, oh, you know what I mean? Because filmmakers can do that thing where they find what they do really well and just be like, yeah, I'll push that button to get the monkey treat every time. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, honestly, like I, it's always just been deeply rooted in my DNA to, to try to be original. And and it's because I, it's just what, what invigorates me. It, like I, I, listen, I love great movies and a great movie is a great movie whether it's original or not the godfather like is it original no but it's a perfect movie and i love it but i'm so much more tolerant i'm so much more intrigued i'm so much more drawn to something that i haven't seen before and so with my films yeah i do man i try i try to do something different and i was the other night i went and saw i went and saw the old boy uh, re-release out in the yeah. theater yeah and the trailers, yeah, it's like Lee movie it's a joke, it's a joke. And, and the trailers <laughs> were all just like thriller and like you know that and, and i was just sitting there like oh god i just made a movie about a talking mongoose like you know okay well <laughs> here we go i guess because it's just like i i just can't there, i know that there's things that people want me to make i know there's the what the industry wants i know what is out there i've taken such a more difficult path and i just it couldn't stomach doing the same thing i, I just can't like i don't know I wish I could. What did you, the, the one I'm fascinated about, and I'm going to be straight up with you, is the one I'm like fascinated about is when the uh, Starland ends. Yeah. And, and, and I'm fascinated by those first two movies. Don't, don't be smart your work. No. Don't do that. No, I'll don't tell you. No, that. listen. But, but, but that and Stakeout, I kind of am fascinated by the autobiographical stuff yeah. because you kind of have to pop that pimple. I know. When you first start out, and even if it feels, not like I don't. Uh, the words kind of masturbatory, but even if it feels sort of like that, there's a little bit more of like, fuck it. If Richard Linklater, another person who's doing different movies every time, if Richard Linklater, if it's good enough for Richard Linklater to do a movie about who he is and where he's from and what he's going through, then it's good enough for us. And you didn't just tell the story within the Starlight Ends; right. you told it in a revisionist way that might have prepped you 
for Chariot. Well, it prepped me for divorce. I'll tell you that much. It was a very personal story about like, about just realizing about myself that I'm almost a fucking sociopath when it comes to telling stories and how the art, the artistic aspect of my life is more important than everything else. And and, and that I know I shouldn't feel that way. And I, and I love my family. I love my kids. I love my ex-wife, you know, I, I love them all, but, but, deep as deep as I run I'm here to tell stories and and that's what Starlight was about and it was me realizing that about myself and Starlight was a fucking catastrophe for a lot of reasons the biggest one being I didn't get to edit that movie the the the, uh, producers and investors actually just took it and made it into what they wanted to make it and I you know Sam and I talk about it often and and there's articles out there and stuff about what happened with that movie where you know essentially they just kind of they didn't want me, they, they wanted to fire me while we were making the movie. And Sam said, no, 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 no. I came on to do this movie with Adam. And so they were stuck with me and we didn't have money and we tried our best. And so then they, we finished and I did a cut and, and of the movie and I sent it to the producers and everything. And they were like, this is fantastic. And Sam loved it. He's like, dude, this is what we set out to make. And so I sent it to the, to the, so, so then the, um, the investors said, okay, we're going to do a round of of notes and i said okay great and then i didn't hear anything again and then they were like hey we sold the movie and i was like what do you mean and they're like yeah we just took our cut and sold it and i hadn't even seen it i hadn't had any participation and so i kind of was like you know what the fuck is going on here and it was financed by dr oz and of all people because his daughter was the lead in it and so oz and his brother-in-law and his wife cut the movie and made it and (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it was it was a it was a learning experience man and that's not an excuse for why the movie sucks i actually think the movie has some great moments in it but it was not what i intended and and i learned and and now i've had i've had other bad experiences on movies for sure but i always get final cut that that's the one thing where i don't let that happen again because i was powerless i was powerless and i and i couldn't do anything and it was really crazy having that feeling and put and putting in so much time and effort and emotion and belief and then just having it taken away i was like oh yeah i'm not gonna do that again there are so many filmmakers who've been on the show who tell that story and their career takes a pivot yeah like at that and in you for you it's i will make a movie for less money or a movie that's more traditional to to make sure I have that final cut. Is that what stakeout was? Because stakeout, yeah. when you look at stakeout on the level, it's like it stakeout, stakeout feels a little less Adam. It was, it was much more linear. And, and you know, the, the synthesis of why I made stakeout and it was called fucking Sargasso. It was called Sargasso. It was such a better title and they fucked it, but whatever. I, they have stakeout movies. They have really of as I know it was called Sargasso. It was such a better title, but anyway, I don't even think of it as stakeout. It's Sargasso. So, when I was a PI, everybody would always kind of say like, what is it like? You know, it's so exciting. And I'd go to meetings in the film industry and they'd be like, oh, you got to write a script. And I think they had this vision of me as fucking Nightcrawler running around, but it was boring and it was depressing. And it was seeing poor Mexican people getting fucked by the insurance system in LA. And then seeing the hypocrisy of then small business owners getting fucked by what's going on. And and it was just this kind of like morass of just depressive shit in LA. And I was like, okay, you guys really want me to write a script about this? Okay, fine. And I, I would tell my surveillance partner, I, when, when I've seen everything as a PI, at that point, when I've seen everything there is to see, 
I'm done. I'm retiring. I'm just going to go into movies full time. I don't give a fuck if I can't support my family. I'll figure out a way. And I reached that point where I'd seen everything with this one case. And I made that movie. And I'm proud of, of Sargasso. That movie is like that, the, the two lead characters represented the two sides of me, which was the young sort of like starry eyed guy who was like, OK, I'm doing doing the right thing. I'm out there investigating. I'm solving crimes. And then the older sort of dawning awareness of like the fact that nobody fucking wins and that when I'm a good PI and I do a good job and fucking Pablo or Jose who works at a factory and is trying to fucking feed his family and is maybe making some questionable decisions about workers comp and I bust him. It's like, cool. The insurance company's happy with me and their stock, you know, like fine. But, but this guy's fucking life is ruined. And I was like, you know, this is a broken system and it's nobody's winning from any of this. And that's what I wrote about. And so that's what Sargasso was. And, and so I'm proud of it from the perspective that if people watch it and can get over the fact that it's a low budget movie, like it, it, it actually has a fucking message that I stand behind and that turned out pretty strong. And you never felt the pressure to be like, Hey man, make it training day. I, of course, but I don't give a fuck. Yeah. You know me like, like, right. I, I, what did you do? Like, did you give up money on the budget? to make sure it did not turn into training. <laughs> no, I had to, I mean, budgetarily, that movie was an absolute nightmare. I, I hooked up with these producers who were like, we're financing this movie. And I said, okay, well, plot twist, they were not financing anything. And I was actually raising money. I was raising money as we shot. So I was filming and then fundraising while filming to, to, to get us to the finish line because nobody else was doing it. Did you shoot the movie in spurts? Production no, spurts? we shot the whole thing. It was just kind of like, I wasn't sleeping much. I, that was when I was going through a divorce. And shit is on debt. Yeah. So it was, uh, I, that one was kind of like kept afloat by sheer force of my will, essentially. Yeah. yeah. We are showing up with cameras tomorrow and we're shooting. Yeah, pretty much. And we are pointing the camera at actors yeah, regardless it was of like, Well, we have no money. And I was like, don't worry. We will by tomorrow. And we did. <laughs> you got yourself an ulcer. I mean, you must have been a goddamn rage cage. Yeah at that point going through a divorce and fighting for the life of a film yeah. because it was your, I mean, I don't want to say it was your last chance, but it was kind of like after the experience you had of having Dr. Oz take your movie away yeah. and give it a facelift, like it gives somebody else. <laughs> like it, 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 Jim's back in the comments. He says, Adam, I was already glad when Dr. Oz oh. didn't win his Senate race. Your story helps further justify my schadenfreude. Uh, <laughs> I agree. For the sake of, He's a very famous, powerful man. I, I'm not a big fan of that guy. Let's put it that way. So, yeah, but when when Geekscape is here's what we want to talk about. What we want to talk about is the fact that uh, Nander Fordor. I don't know how you can see it. Like Legion, like you would see it on VOD, right? Oh no, it's doing theatrical. It's in theaters. It's it's doing theatrical. But like you're gonna end up seeing it. Like however you want to see it, Geekscape is. You got to check the local listings. Yeah. Uh, Nander Ford, or you're gonna see Seven Pegs in it. Christopher Lloyd, Mini Driver, my friend Ruth O'Connell. Ruthie, she was at a birthday party the other night. She's here and she's pregnant. I have not seen Ruthie since huh. I had. When did I, see, I, I last saw Ruthie a few years ago. I talked to her last summer, but Ruthie and I met when I was understudying on Supernatural. I was understudying Bob Singer on Supernatural, yeah. and Ruthie and I just kind of hung out the whole time. Um, with Emily Swallow, who you can now see on Mandalorian and all that stuff. Yeah. But um, one of I love people. Ruthie. Congratulations to Ruth. I know. One of my favorite humans. She's absolutely lovely, and I love her so much. And yes. 
That's the word I was going to use to describe her. It was lovely. Yes. And also, you yeah. mentioned the voice of Jeff in Mandor. Is Neil fucking Gaiman, yeah. dude? Like, what kind of nerdgasm did you have with that? Dude, happened? it was so crazy how that came about. And so once he agreed to do it, and I exchanged a couple emails with him, his assistant said, "Okay, you can come record this stuff with Neil. Come up to upstate New York. He likes to do it at this this converted church that's now a recording studio. It's in the middle of fucking nowhere." I said, "Okay," and so I flew out to New York immediately and drove two and a half hours in the middle of the night out to Woodstock and. The, the, then further into the middle of nowhere early the next morning to this recording studio and there Neil shows up and we chatted for about an hour before we started and he was just absolutely such a kind nice guy we had a lot of stories about his books and and people we knew and mutual friends and 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 he was just so fucking cool and I would fucking cry. Dude. I, no, it was beautiful. He was, but he's so unassuming. Like, like, he, he, like he's just a dude. He showed up and he was just kind of in his fucking car and was like, "Hey, man!" And came in and we just chatted and we talked a lot about Miyazaki and because you know we forgot. You know what? What I forgotten. So Simon is the the a huge Miyazaki fan. I'm a big Miyazaki fan, and you know, obviously, Princess Mononoke is one of the few movies that. I watched dubbed, you know, for one of the few anime and, I watched dubbed. And Neil wrote the... Yeah, he said... He, yeah. He, and he got taken off the credits by Harvey Weinstein. It, which is fucked, but Geekscape is... Mononoke was seen as an inaccessible film to Western audiences, yeah. so Neil wrote an extra yeah. portion of the movie yeah. to make it more accessible, and I think that that portion is awesome. So that was like a big part of the... For me, that was a big part of the advertising when Princess Mononoke came out in theaters... Neil Gaiman's involvement was one of the major points. That and the fact that it was the director of Nausicaa and Lapida, which was like, my big selling point was like, Lapida is my favorite of the Miyazaki films. Beautiful. And that, that's that. And I, I've been, I mean, I don't know. I talk about Miyazaki all the fucking time. One day on set, you know, Simon came to me and he said, dude, you remember who did the voice of Lady Eboshi? And I said, no, fucking mini driver. And I was like, holy shit, I forgot that. And then I was like, actually, like with Minnie, I was like, oh my God, that's fucking amazing. And I said... But that's because you're watching the Japanese subtitles. Yeah, no, 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 the, yeah. the, the dubbed one. Yeah, the one with the yeah. famous actors. No. I watched that one, though. The, the, American dub, oh, you the American dub of that is really good. It's one of the few movies, again, that I watched dubbed. Usually I watch subbed. Uh, I watch a ton of anime and I'll always watch it. Um, yeah. But if you watch Lapida, you're going to end up with James. Duke. No offense, James Vanderbeek, but you're going to end up with James Vanderbeek. Uh, the one to watch the dub version of the Miyazaki is Porco Rosso because it's fucking Michael Keaton. I know. But no, but, and you're like, yeah. but the dub of, of Mononoke is amazing. It's like Claire Danes yeah. and Billy Bob Thornton and me. And you're fucking right. Mini. I mean, it's dope. Like that, that dub is worth watching. And I've seen it both ways, but, but. On the the dub, which is by far the more popular version of that particular movie, it's Minnie, and I, and I forgot that, and I talked to her about it, and it was fucking amazing. So. And so, Geekscape, I bring up and I push on this Nander Fordor thing because we need Adam to pop, so we can go back, and his name can be the commercial aspect of going back and getting his earlier two films. Well, the second movie is the the, the movie that's the budget that they ended up with, but. That first movie, we got to go back and rescue it. We got to go back and, uh, I mean, is 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 revisionism in, th- in, in justification? I don't need to. I'm- no, no. The question is, is, the, is revisionism, justification, and the refolding of our existence a running theme in this stuff? When you have something like, 
your first film, when you have something like the gray area that you're learning in the second movie and the third movie is absolutely about revisionism and about that. And then this fourth movie is about the justification of faith and the lies we tell ourselves and truly what is the gray area again? Like, is that all kind of your, your theme? And I, I talk about you trying to hit the ball to the other part, parts of the, of the field every time, but it all kind of plays within that ballpark. Yeah, right? absolutely. My art dictates my life in a lot of ways. Like it really does. My life, does dictate my art to an extent, but my my life seems to follow my movies in a lot of ways. And and the stories I tell often manifest themselves in my life in very strange ways, like even Sargasso in some ways. It's very odd. But you've got this movie about death chariot and you're with your partner making it. And then that happens. Yeah. It's a fuck. That's mean. Like that is that is a mean cosmic trick. What's that, brother? (laughs) I'm more careful. You what? You know, with what I write, because no, it was, yeah, it was crazy, man. The Tower, this movie that you made uh, this summer while we were at Comic Con having fun, and you were stressed out, thinking you were gonna not be able to finish your movie. Yeah, we got shut down for one day. I saw Claire the the next day day or two later. I walk into Comic Con. I'm like, hey, Claire, I've been reading Adam's. uh, Instagram and uh, I'm pretty sure I knew what happened because it's happened a few times and yeah. getting getting a SAG uh, waiver was kind of fresh within days yeah. of you getting it and actually within hours like you guys got shut down until that shit was getting faxed over like y'all literally had to sit there the until third. the thing showed up in an email. We were the third movie. Yeah, I mean, it was actually wild because what happened to us was when we we knew SAG were going to go on strike going into production. Yes, but but they were like, no, what's going to happen is we'll go on strike. You guys are fine because this is independently financed by, you know, private investors and then you'll get your waiver. And so we're like, okay, great. Here was the one fucking problem was SAG doesn't work weekends. We were shooting our days off were Monday and Tuesday. So Hmm. SAG went on strike on a Thursday and on Friday we were like, okay, we need our waiver. And they're like, oh no, no, the waiver is not even created yet. And we're like, okay, so what do we do? Cause we're shooting and they're like, Oh, that's fine. Just by Monday, you'll have it. I'm like, well, sorry to be uh, difficult, but we're shooting Saturday and Sunday. And they're like, no, no, you just can't shoot Saturday and Sunday. And I was like, so we don't have wiggle room. We are a small production. Um, yeah. So the next day, Saturday, we came to set and everybody was there. The actors were there. And I said, okay, so, uh, we're not supposed to shoot today. And so I shot a lot of B-roll. <laughs> I shot a lot of shots of trees. How many people How many people in that unit? Yeah, Two people, three people in a unit? And, and so basically I shot a lot of trees and trains and houses and fucking dead roadkill. And Do you usually shoot that stuff on your films? Do you shoot a lot of the B? No, not as, much as, not as much as I'd like to, but on that one. Right. Choice. So it was good. So meanwhile, and then intermittently just hammering our SAG rep saying, listen, I'm on board with the strike. I support everything, but this is not, this is the type of film you don't want to hurt. Like we're, we're doing this the right way. So when can we get this? And this was a Saturday and it was no response, no response, no response. And I'm just like freaking out. And then Saturday night at 1030, we got an email from SAG saying this will serve as your interim waiver. They didn't even have the interim waiver yet, but they, but they said, we, the interim waiver is coming. You are approved. This serves as notification. They emailed the reps of our actors. I was like, oh God, thank God. So then we only missed one day. We only missed that Saturday and Sunday we were back to it. 
And they were allowed to come to set. They so were allowed to come back. It was, uh, but it was, yeah, it was crazy. You guys built a pretty big set piece for that. Yeah, we built a fucking huge water tank. That's the thing about me too, is that like, I know that I'll come to a point in my career at some point where I'm super comfortable with like filming green screen and all kinds of VFX and shit, but I'm not there yet. And so I'm very simple and practical. And so they were like, okay, like we'll get a pool. And, put, and it, it's about a mermaid who's in a water tower, right? So I filmed the outside of the water tower. I'm like, no, no, no. Like, we need to build the inside of water tower. Like, what if you do it with cables and air oh, and slow-mo? And then like, that's what they did with spy kids. And it's like, no, 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 no. Budget, I'm sure it works. But, but my experience literally without exception is that every time producers or fucking whoever are like, Oh no. So here's what like some fucking jury rigged way to do it. It looks like shit. And so I was like, let's I, build a fucking tank. And we built a gigantic water tank with like 30,000 gallons of water in it. And we made it into the inside I, of water tower. I, I talked about a sequence in the film we're working on now with with driving. And it's like, oh, but you, there's so much you can shoot on a volume. And I'm like, I do not want to shoot driving on a volume. I don't want to do it. I don't want to shoot man. driving on a volume. And there's a part of you. And I understand the volume because you're shooting and like I, – I, my I'm like you when it comes to VFX and posts and that stuff, because I want to go home and have the footage and know in a couple snips yes. that I have what I wanted and I have the movie and that yeah. that. But if you are looking for play, but if you're shooting plates and that stuff needs to be composited and you need to start putting this stuff together, it, it, I don't want to live with that kind of nerve wrack <laughs> that like, holy shit, like, do I actually have this? Do I have this sequence? Did this? Did I do this? And like the volume stuff sounds great, and I love the idea. I love what volume is doing to like the volume stages are doing to like your AD loves it because you can like snap a finger and you're in a new location. You just have to add like the pool table. But the but the but for somebody who thinks that film is should, in performances should still be tactile, should still be people putting their fingers on things, uh-huh. people breathing within their same areas, like you gotta. There's nothing like the real thing, baby. Uh-huh. And so you're building a damn pool so you can go home at night and you can look at the dailies yeah, and you can fucking make sure you have your damn movie, especially because you lost a day. Well, and it, and it, yeah. And it, it, like you said, you nailed it. It's the actors, you know, acting's hard and it's hard. It's already hard. And trying to make actors act with nothing is impossible. And, and so I want it to be real. And, and it's always like, and I also just love, practical effects in general like i look at them and i just am so much and and look i'm not such a, some fucking purist douchebag i mean i'm a douchebag but i'm not a purist like I, no but it, it's an augmentation to what you're trying to do practically and if, yes and if there's no way to do it practically you fucking do it with vfx but try and do it some aspect of it practically and i just think it helps the actors helps everything I was watching that Mission Impossible last night and trying to see when they're doing like the actors. Did you see the new Mission Impossible? I did. You with your buddy, your buddy Simon's in it. I did. Um, I was trying to look for like the Texas switches mm. between actors yeah. and stuff, and I was like, how they do the Texas switch? And ultimately, a part of me is like, or did they just do face replacements? Or did they just do? But it would be so much cooler with Texas switches, I where mean, where there's one actor on screen and then Geekscape is a combination of the blocking, performance, and lighting and the camera an actor swaps in for another actor. And obviously in a mission impossible movie where people are undergoing different identities and secret masks and things like that, you can see why you would need a Texas switch with one actor stepping in and suddenly undergoing the identity of another actor character in the movie. And like, that's what I was looking for in the movies whenever it like pans and this and that. I love those. I know it would have been so cool. Yeah. 
I think they actually did it in a few places, and they used awesome. a wig on the a wig on the edge of frame oh, wow. to have an actor step into the an actor wearing the wig. That'd be cool. Simon specifically is holding the wig, ah. and well, I think I the, the, the wig is the edge of frame. Yeah. And then, and then when the camera pans back around, it's the different actor's face in that wig. I think they used the wig to make the Texas switch. Yeah. But Simon, Simon had to hold the wig exact. Oh, wow. Without without moving it when the actors swapped. That's cool. to do it, and it was very it was very quick. I think there was a Texas switch right there. That being said, everyone's telling you like. That being said, they shot it during the pandemic, and there were scenes where you could tell because of the way that they shot the separation. Yeah, and where I and where you could see some of the stuff where I was like, "The I love it. This movie is cool. It's got some great set pieces. It's exciting. I want to feel something a little bit more organic I mean, in some of this." Simon still, I talked a lot to Simon, and I hung out a whole bunch making Mandor, and he told me all a lot about how they make those movies, and it's so wild. I mean, it's just another level of filmmaking that I'm so far from. I mean, like they don't even have scripts for a lot of that stuff. It's built around the action pieces, and there's a lot of mm-hmm. improv. And I just looked at Simon one day when he was, and I said, "This sounds so fucking stressful," and he kind of looked at me and just went. Like and Simon's such, <laughs> such a literate, such a script guy, and so he's the sweetest person we've ever had on Geekscape. He's, so I'll tell you, a, he's the sweetest person we've ever had on Geekscape. But the story that reminds me of is the Jeff Daniels on Iron Man one story, where he so showed up on set on Iron Man the first day of Jeff Daniels on Iron Man one. He shows up with Robert Downey Jr. and Jeff Favreau, John Favreau, just doing the like the improv thing, and Jeff Daniels like. So this is what you're fucking. This is what you're doing. Like you're just improving a big movie like this. Okay. Uh, all right. All right. I guess. I guess I'm on the ride. Yeah, that's amazing, Simon. I'll tell you your story. I'll tell you a brief anecdote about Simon. So I told you that that you know we were closing Simon, and and he, I had had a Zoom with him, and he's like, I want to do this movie, and I said, Okay, cool, and I was like, Great, and I was so kind of just like starstruck and excited to be working with this actor that I respected so much, and I, you know, again, my my partner passed away, and. The next day I flew out to LA to meet Simon because he was only going to be here for one day. And I was like, I got to meet this guy in person. So I flew out and I was wreck on the flight. And, but I, on the flight, I was like, you know what? Like nervousness and grief. You know, just, yeah. Just, just, I was just, I was fucking just broken, but I was like, you know, you're a rage cage, Adam. I'm calling you the rage. This cage. wasn't rage. This was just sadness. But I, I know. But I said, broken. I said, I'm not going to make this, this meeting about that. This is about Nandor. I want this to be positive and dope and exciting. And this is what this is. Right. So I sat down with Simon at the hotel out here in Beverly Hills and it was so great. And we hung out and chatted and we chatted for like two hours. And, but at one point he kind of looked at me and and we were just talking about Nandor and he said, mate, I saw on your Instagram, like, did your, did your girlfriend just die? And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. But dude, I'm good, man. Nandor's going to be dope. I'm excited to make this fucking movie. And he kind of looked at me like, okay. So then he got my number somehow because we'd only been dealing through the reps. And he texted me the next day and he said, dude, he said, I've just been thinking about you all day. And he's like, you must be so fucking sad. And he's like, I'm going to do an extra amazing job on this movie in her honor. And like, dude, this is a famous actor. Like this is a movie star saying that to essentially a new director. He didn't have to do that. Like he had the fucking part. We were kissing his ass to be in my movie. He had no measure of kissing up to me that he needed to do. So, so like that speaks to his character. Like that's a real dude right there. Like straight up, like he didn't have to do that. He did this thing 
I'll go ahead and say it. I don't know if he has the same reps, but with the idea of quid pro quo and a doc, he was in our documentary, Doc of the Dead. Oh, yeah. And he shot all he shot all the stuff in, in our in our living room, and he and he always between doing Geekscape and then coming back for for Doc of the Dead, he knew the names of our dogs and everything, and just a real person. And uh, and we got an email in be, in like the month or a couple months be, between him being at the house for Geekscape and then being back at the house for the shooting of the documentary where like the day before he was supposed to come over and film the documentary, some rep sent me an email did not suddenly Simon's not CC'd on any of these. And the only one he wasn't CC'd on was one was like, so what's the quid pro quo on this? And it's a documentary. Like we cannot pay people in a documentary to point a camera. Like, and I felt so effing awkward. I was like, I quid pro quo on a documentary. Like I, we can't pay. It's a dark. And so, and I forwarded, I kind of like sent a message to Simon. It was like, dude, I just got this message. Like, I don't know how to deal with it. I'm so sorry, dude. Like, I really am excited to have you over and shoot this thing. And he goes, give me five minutes. And he says, taken care of. See you tomorrow. And I was like, you're a real one. And there's a chapter, Geekscapists who've not picked up his book, Nerd Do Well. There's a chapter in his book that talks about both Star Wars and losing a childhood friend. That when I read it, I was sitting in a effing Carl's Jr. reading this damn book, and I sent him a message that I was crying. <laughs> I don't know, I was eating junk food, just crying, reading this chapter. And if you've not read Nerd to Well, go pick up that book yeah. and read that because that that specific chapter tells you everything when, you need to know about him as a fan and as a human. And I'll tell you this as a professional. I mean, when you people, I think, although a lot of aspiring actors that I know, I think they have this mentality of like, they see an actor who's famous and, and they're like, why, why him? Like, I could do that. I could do that better than him. Let me tell you something about Simon Pegg. He's fucking perfect. He's so fucking good. Every decision this guy made was right. Every script tweak he wanted to make was better than what I had written. He does, he does the whole movie in a Hungarian accent. And I was so nervous because I had had a bad experience on a different movie with an actor trying to do an accent. And he shows up at the table read and it's fucking flawless. Simon is so smart and so good. He's next level smart and good. Something Simon did while we were filming Nandor that didn't hit me until months later. Every day I'd show up on set and he would be like, mate, that fucking scene yesterday, that note you gave me was so good. He'd be like, dude, you got it. He was like, I've worked with a lot of great directors and you have it. Could have all been bullshit, but he hyped me up so much that my confidence was so high that I did a better job as a director that he was in. And you need that, you need that like, momentum. Skaters, how many days? What's that? how many days? We shot for like twenty five days. It was it was a, it was a crazy shoot. But not. But and you need the momentum, or you're going to go fucking nuts, and you're going to have dips. But that's the point. Like he could have gone home and been like, "This guy's yeah. a complete fucking idiot." But he he had me so confident. And, and not a lot of actors do that, but it speaks to just the fact that the dude knows what he's doing. He's so cool. Everybody on set fucking loved him. And I can tell you a crazy story, crazy, like unbelievably crazy about like just his help with regard to post and the release of the film and stuff like that. That's like, I'm, I'm like not even sure if I can actually tell it. Maybe I'll tell it to you off, but it's, it's like mind blowing how much he did for this film. And like, the guy really is a rarity, you know, and I've gotten He's lucky, really. I think, with a lot of the actors I've worked with. I've become really good friends with Malkovich, like Sam from Starlight is like, I mean, the guy just went to bat. For me. He's he's in Outlander, yeah. 
which I don't watch, but I but Heidi watches it, and I used to call it. I, I was like, oh, whenever I'd walk through the room, I'd always see him kind of naked, and I'd be like, oh, you're watching your time travel porn. So yeah. like in, in our household, it's not called Outlander; it's called time travel porn. Yeah. And and she's like, Jonathan, it hasn't been time travel porn for several seasons, and I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. Yeah, now it's just period piece porn. But Sam is a Sam is a a lovely guy. Well, that that story about him, I read a story about him when the financiers, those ones who seemed incredibly kind to you and, and patient and wonderful, uh, when they wanted to cut his budget by 80% and it would have negated most actors involved. They made they made, they made me call. They wanted you to, to deliver the good I news. Called him, I called him trying not to cry. And I said, hey, dude, this was two weeks before. This was a week. That is a, that is a movie killer in 99.9% .9 of the situations oh, in any movie. That's a movie I killer. I drove to the top of a hill because I was just so upset and I would just need it. You might as well throw yourself off yeah, if it goes and I called And I called Sam and I said, hey, dude, you know, I have some bad news. We're not going to make the movie. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, they are deferring essentially all your pay like you're gonna you're, you're not even getting paid enough to cover your flight and he kind of was quiet and he said oh it's fine like, I, i'm still doing it i said what do you mean and he's like no, i'm doing this for you man he's like i, I love this script i love you he's like, i don't need this fucking money like let's do it and i was so shocked that he was doing that. like i was just like are you kidding me dude and he's like yeah it's fine uh, we're, i'm in and i was like again like i've gotten lucky with regard to the the caliber of most of the people that I've worked with on the acting side and, and just like, you know, Simon was just the latest in that, you know, yeah. just like a true fucking, and also just like such a cinephile. We had movie night many, a couple of times during Nandor and just, we, we both just have such a reverence for film, you know? Well, Adam, listen, I'm going to see you at the premiere on Thursday. Yeah, I can't wait. I'm coming to this premiere screening, this thing. Yeah. We're gonna do. Thank you for the invite. I can't wait to see it. This movie, it. it's got many of my favorite things. And now, because you've been on Geekscape, you're one of them. Oh, you're one. You like this talk? I'm sorry we didn't talk about too much film, but we kind of still did. Yeah. If you think about it, Geekscapist. Hey, you know, I, I talk about whatever you want, man. You ever want me on again after I make another movie? I'll talk just about <laughs> film, but you know, I like. I don't love that. I mean, Geekscapist, I love that stuff, but like they tell you, like the real learning how to film is just be on set and go get a, get a camera and make your movies and stuff. Like that's really the, that's where you learn it. Listening to a bunch of people talk about a Geekscape is really the why. And if I can deliver the why on Geekscape, that's that guys, I need Geekscape. I was talking to my father today. We were talking about the hiccup and the strike and my producer and I having the, like talking to actors and how do we get this next movie up? And, and my dad's like, and I, and I asked my dad just straight up, I said, dad, am I the definition of insanity? You know, just doing this thing over, you know, just doing it, doing it, doing it. And, uh, and immediately what you do when you ask yourself that situation, it comes out of frustration, geekscapist and impatience is you erase the progress you have made and you erase the wonderful moments and memories you have made. And if anything, geekscape, and he's like, so this geeks, you know, my dad, I was always like checking on geekscape. He's like, so this geekscape thing, does it still serve you? Because it's the longest running thing. And I said, yeah, because I get to meet people who have the shared story like I do. And we get to like talk about the why. And not a lot of places talk about the why. I'm not sure Sid Field, when you're learning to write a screenplay, talks about the why. And Sid Field's really great about the what. A lot of these places are really good about the what. Yeah. Three point, yeah, go learn three point lighting. It's the why. Absolutely. And it's great. That's everything. It's everything. Yeah. Um, Adam, I'll see you on Thursday, dude. Thanks so much for being on Geeks Kid, man. Love you, dude. You're the man. All right. Nander. Thanks, brother. Nander.
Nander Fordor is going to be on uh, in theaters uh, coming up this week. Geeks gave us check your local listings, look for that movie, and go get tickets because we need this thing to be a hit so we can go back to Doctor Oz and be like, hey, this guy's a big name now. We need to, we need to recut this movie. Have you seen this this Outlander thing? On, uh, uh, this, have you seen this Outlander thing? It's big, man. These two, we got some big names on this, and uh, I think this movie deserves a re-edit and a special edition. And uh, director's cut. I have the fucking director's cut. It's I know you know. I know you. I know you do. I know you do. Every filmmaker is like, yeah, here's my edit. And then there's a hard drive uh, on a shelf next to a Max figure. Yeah, that it's in the closet behind them. I know. Actually. I'm looking at. I have my. There's a Get Up Kids story about a director's cut that I have because Matt Pryor, who I love, uh, it goes back to practical filmmaking. Matt Pryor did not want to do stuff that wasn't practical because he he didn't want to do. Anything with with uh, speed, variable frame like frame rates and speed stuff, and I needed to because I needed to shoot slow mo, and I had to convince Matt Pryor because they just did a Get Up Kids video that was not good. You can find it. I'm not going to do smirch a filmmaker, but you can find it. Geekscape is there's a Get Up Kids video. It's supposed to be one take. It's got speed problems. Wow. It's got weird stutter problems. Wow. Matt showed up and was like, Jonathan, I don't want to do this in slow mo, and I said we have to do this in slow mo. And Matt Pryor, who I love, I had to convince to do it practically. Um, without any weird effects, and we got it done practically, but we took variable frame rates, and and uh, that's that's my convincing actors that it, doing something weird and technical isn't going to mess up their organic process. Good for you, man. I love it. <sighs> love you, man. Geeks Cabus will be here next week. Um, go watch Nando Fordor, and uh, tell your friends to subscribe to this podcast. Hey, buddy. Um, peace. All right. You're listening to the Geekscape Network. 